0: Well, good morning. How you doing? Good morning. good morning. So good to see you today. My name is Adrian, and uh, I delight to be one of the pastors here at Carney Free. Welcome to those watching in the venue and those watching online at Uh So grateful that you chose to worship with us today, especially if you're a newcomer. Thank you for uh, taking the time and the energy to be with us today to give this church a try. We hope you're able to connect with God and with a few others today, and if we can do anything to help you with that, please let one of the pastors or volunteers know that. Information table's available to you as well if you have any questions about the church. Hey, before I jump into this morning's message, I want to just uh, take a moment to pray. Uh, There's been a lot, though, that's been going on in our nation and our world over these past weeks, and uh, I'm sure you're... Uh, up to date with many of those things, obviously. My heart has been grieved by what we've seen in Turkey and Syria, with over 45,000 people who are now killed in that earthquake, and hundreds of thousands, though, that have lost their homes. And uh, there's a common humanity that we are wise to just pause and pray for. And simultaneously, there's much trouble domestically, it feels like, as well, as there's, you know, a horrible shooting at Michigan State, and many of those this year it seems and we pray for those folks and yet there's a work of God that also seems to be happening in certain places that we pray for more of here as well and I happen to believe that there is a work of God happening in a number of different college campuses right now and I'm praying that God would continue to move that forward and I'm choosing not to be skeptical about those things because God does work through the prayers of his people through repentance and through sorrow over sin, and through a genuine passion and desire for more of the things of God, and desire for more of His love and more of His holiness. And, and really, that's what we're after in this sermon series as a whole. And so, um, I think, I think well, let's just begin with, with prayer here this morning. Father, uh, I'm so grateful for you. You are the great and powerful, amazing, all wise, loving, and forgiving God. And today we get to talk about that fact that you are the forgiving God, and, and we worship you as we come to this place this morning. It's, it's not just a place that we would gather in community, it is that, and that's important, but more than that, it's a, it's a church, and, and the church is your plan A for the world. And uh, we would desire, Lord, in this church to be difference makers for, for your kingdom, and so we ask, God, that you would help us to live more and more into our calling to be citizens of another kingdom that speak to the the holiness and the love and the forgiveness and the passion of God. And Father, I thank you for every person here and every family. I know many are going through challenges right now. And so I ask your spirit to rest on all of us today and particularly those who are struggling with health issues or relationship issues, um, maybe some kind of difficulty that they're navigating right now in their life. God, would you please bring your Holy Spirit to them to give them strength? And Father, we do uh, want to think about the reality that every person across this world is made in the image and likeness of God, and there's pain, such grievous pain across our world, and, and so we pray for those who are enduring awful war in Ukraine, and we pray for peace there. In Jesus' name, we ask God that wise minds would prevail, you would humble the proud, and you give grace to the humble. And God, you bring peace to that region. And we pray as well, Lord, for men and women who are grieving over lost loved ones in Turkey and Syria and those who have lost their homes and just trying to pick up the pieces and figure out what it looks like from here. And we ask, God, that your church, though it's small in Turkey and Syria today, it would rise up with great power. And it would be a testimony to the grace and the power of God for those who are hurting and we ask God that you would use even tragedy as you're able to do to point people to the hope of the living God. God you choose to use tragedy in our lives and around the world to call us back to the one whose name is holy and so we ask God that you would do even that and father for the flames that you seem to are kindling right now at Asbury and Cedarville and many other universities it seems, across our nation. We pray, God, that you would kindle those more and more. And uh, we ask that you would do that here. We invite you. Come, Holy Spirit, come. And as you would wish, God, would you bring about a season of, of deeper worship and greater conviction and more focus on the greatest commandment to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you call us back to the center, back to the cross, back to the scriptures, and we would place all of our focus there, and from there we would love in a different manner. Father, we give ourselves to you. All of our lives are for you. They're not for status, or sex, or money, or greed, or anything like that. They're for you. And so, Father, we give ourselves to you today and always, asking God that you would renew our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Amen. Our elder board right now is studying a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. It was written about seventy-five years ago by a great pastor and kind of self-trained theologian by the name of A. W. Tozer. Short, simple book on who God is. I can't recommend it highly enough. It's an easy one that anyone can read. It will make you think, but short chapters and rich, deep stuff uh, throughout this book. And Tozer opens up the book with these words. He says, Enlighten our minds that we may know thee as thou art, so that we may perfectly love thee and worthily praise thee. That's really the point of our sermon series, God's Name. That we would say, enlighten us, God, that we may know you as you are. Not as we want you to be, not as we would reform you in our image, not as the news outlets make you to be. That we would know you as you are, so that we would worthily praise you as you really are. We're trying to get an accurate mental portrait of God, not fabrications of our own mind, which inevitably minimize God, don't they? Whatever fabrications of God we develop in our own mind inevitably minimize the glory of God. And so we're trying to get the right mental image, the right mental portrait of God that we might more fully praise and worship him. So let's get to it today. We're talking about our forgiving God. Today is all about our forgiving God. Now few things in my life are more painful, have been more painful than the pain of unforgiveness. How about you? Few things in life are as painful as the pain of unforgiveness. You've probably had the experience of doing something wrong and asking forgiveness for that, and someone forgiving you. And there was a release and a restoration of relationship that was powerful. Now maybe you've also had the experience of doing something wrong, and asking forgiveness, and someone not forgiving you. Have you had that? I've had that. One of my plumb lines for life is to never gossip. That's one of my plumb lines. Never gossip. And never spread a bad report about anyone. Why? Because you always only have a portion of the information, and nothing good ever comes from spreading a bad report about someone else. It always comes back to bite you, always ends up hurting, hurting someone else. That's one of my plumb lines for life. Now, sadly, that was not always one of my plumb lines. Some 20 years ago, I didn't have that plumb line, and I spread a bad report about a professor of mine. It was partially accurate, but it was partially inaccurate. And I assumed he would not hear about it, but I was wrong. And he came to me, he saw me in public one day, and he came to me and he said, Adrian, I heard that you said this and that about me and some of the research I was doing. Is that true? To which I kind of hemmed and hawed and stuttered a bit and danced around his question, but he kept his foot on my throat. And he wouldn't allow me to dance around. He made me answer the question, and eventually I had to just stop and look him in the eyes and say, Dr. So-and-so, I am sorry for what I said. That was wrong of me. Now, he was right to confront me, and I respect the way he confronted me. I was wrong in what I said, and he called me to account. He did not forgive He did not forgive. And still to this day, when I think about that experience, I remember vividly where I was when it happened. Because the pain of unforgiveness is one of the most painful things that we experience in life. Into that, we see the character of God which I'm so grateful for here in Exodus 34. I'll start at verse 5. Here's our key passage for this entire series. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with Moses, and he proclaimed his name as Moses receiving the Ten Commandments. He proclaims his name, the Lord, and he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining his love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. Today we're talking about the forgiveness of God. Next Sunday, well, we're gonna wrestle with God's wrath. We're gonna look at that final line And I want you to know there is mercy in that final line as well. It may not immediately be apparent, but it will be by next week. You gotta come back. We'll wrestle with God's wrath, and then the final message in this series will be application of God's name in two weeks. Bible scholar Douglas Stewart articulates this in his commentary on Exodus. This is so good. He says, God does not reluctantly forgive sins. He does so eagerly as a manifestation of his character this is who God is is a manifestation of his character because he is such a kind, compassionate, gracious loving God as a manifestation of his character he he eagerly desires to forgive sin now God is eager to forgive sin but to get to forgiveness first my friends we got to get to sin don't we To get to forgiveness first, my friends, anybody here? I'm not so sure. We gotta get to sin. Notice how God describes sin to Moses. Far from minimizing it or dancing around it like I did with my professor, he names it and then he expands upon it, doesn't he? He says, forgiving, sin, wickedness, and rebellion. He doesn't name just one, he expands upon it with all three of those words. Now sin simply means, in the original language, to miss the mark. Okay, God gives us a mark, he gives us a standard of the Ten Commandments, for example, or the Sermon on the Mount, which expands on the Ten Commandments, as we talked about in Citizens of Another Kingdom. God gives us the standard, and it's to miss the mark. It even has the imagery of an archer pulling back the bow, shooting an arrow, and missing the target wildly. That's sin. It's missing the target that you're aiming for. The next word that God gives here is rebellion. And rebellion is the natural constitution of every human on earth. Happy Sunday. It is. After the fall of humanity, the natural constitution of every human on earth is I'm going to do it my way. So God says in the Sermon on the Mount, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, but you say, no, I just don't want to do that. Uh Uh-uh. That's where I stop it, God. I'm not doing that because I will decide. I'll be the judge of that. That's rebellion. Or I know that the Bible tells me to honor my boss, but I really don't like my boss, and so I'm going to talk about my boss. That's rebellion, I know the Bible tells me to honor my mom and dad, but, okay, we we, we could go on with this, right? We could go on with this. This is the natural reality of every human heart that we kind of buck against authority. That's the second thing that God says that he forgives. The third is wickedness. The third word is wickedness. And wickedness is a word that speaks of distorting something that is good, Taking something that is good and perverting it so that it's no longer good. So, you take money, which is a good thing, well, which is a gift from God, and think of the ways that we distort it, right? By hoarding it or by being lavish in the way we constantly spend on ourselves and on and on, it's very easy to pervert something good called money and turn it into something evil. Or the human body. God made humans in his own image, male and female, he created them both, and he created them in beauty. And pornography distorts that, right? Perverts it, and turns what is beautiful from God into something that is objectified and usually violent and exploitative. Or confidence. Confidence is a good gift from God. We have good reasons to be confident, again, God made us fearfully and wonderfully. He loves us, therefore we can be confident in what he's made in us. He's gifted us. But how easily confidence turns into arrogance, doesn't it? How quickly these things are twisted and distorted. And on and on, well, we could go with these different examples. This is what wickedness is. It twists or distorts something that is good. Let me ask this question. Has the experience of wickedness, rebellion, and sin in your life added to your sense of wholeness and peace or is it added to your sense of destruction? Destruction, Destruction, right? In no life does sin, wickedness, and rebellion add to the sense of shalom. Hmm, things are well. Things are well because I've sinned a little bit more this last week. No, it doesn't work that way. When I think of my example of gossip, or I think of anger or impatience in my own life, I know full well that that is not merely the breaking of some command. It has destructive consequences on people I love. And inevitably, over time, also has destructive consequences on the man in the mirror. You see, for some of us, we have this picture of God that he's kind of like this angry control freak in the sky who has this long list of commands, and if we miss the mark in some area, he's just waiting to spank us. That's not it at all, okay? What you want to have in your mind is a picture of God that is accurate to what we just read in Exodus 34, which is quoted again and again throughout the Bible. Okay, to understand sin you got to have an accurate picture of sin and you also have to have an accurate picture of God. And then when you have an accurate accurate picture of God, then you can realize how destructive sin is and how great God's forgiveness is. God is not some kind of cosmic killjoy telling us not to do things. He instructs us not to do certain things because he wants us to have more joy. He's not trying to be a cosmic killjoy. He wants us to have more joy. And sin minimizes our joy. It has destructive consequences for us and for others. That is the nature of all rebellion, of all wrongdoing. And God in his love and his compassion, he wants the very best for us, and therefore he sets up these standards with appropriate consequences. So whatever categories of sin or rebellion or wickedness happen to be in your backpack, as I just mentioned a number of them in my backpack, whatever they are in yours, what I want to tell you here though this morning for the rest of today is we continue to unpack well, what sin is, what it looks like in an example, and then unpack for forgiveness is this promise. Forgiveness, whatever may be in your backpack, forgiveness is the doorway to wholeness. Say that out loud with me, both in the venue and in this room. Would you say it please? Forgiveness is the doorway to wholeness forgiveness is the doorway to wholeness. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. You'll find it in your Bible after Deuteronomy, then Joshua. So first five books of the Bible is the books of Moses. Then you go to Joshua and Judges. Then you go to First and 2 Samuel. I want you to go to 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you turn to the book of Kings, you've gone just a little bit too far to the right or Chronicles too far to the right. Turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel 12 And Psalm 32, look a little bit of each of those this morning. Psalm 32 is written in the context of 2 Samuel 12. And indeed, many of the psalms are written in the context of what happens in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, which is all about David's sin and David's forgiveness. In the New Testament, we know that David is called a man after God's own heart. But was he always... Not always. Not always. He was also a man of wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So there is this story that you probably know about. The people of Israel go off to war. And David is the commander of the army, but he decides to stay home. And so as the soldiers are off to war, he's in his palace. And while he's in his palace hanging out, not where he's supposed to be, he sees a beautiful woman down below and she's changing and then taking a bath. And he doesn't look away as he should. Instead, he locks in. And as he locks in to her, he falls headlong into lust for her. And he falls headlong into lust for her. What happens next is he chooses to commit adultery with her. He uses his power to have her then he gets caught because she gets pregnant and he has to figure out what I do with all this and so he devises this devious plan where he's going to send her husband out to the front of the battle lines where he'll be killed and he lies about the thing that he's done you know how lying goes right you never lie just once do you And so he devised this plan and he lies again and again and he he sends Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, out to the front of the battle line where he is killed. He has Uriah murdered. Yeah, that's in the Bible. Now what makes David a little bit different than many of us is that he's got this man in his life named Nathan. Nathan. And Nathan, you see, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, has permission to confront David in the middle of his sin. He's a guy that's like in David's life group, who has permission, because he's in David's life group, to take him back to the Bible, and if necessary, to take him to the woodshed. And I just want to ask you here, do you have someone like that in your life group? And if you don't, why not? Why not? And if you don't, how are you going to get it? And we all need someone in our life. I have one or two guys in my life group have the permission to take me to the woodshed. Bring me back to the rails if I'm getting off my rails. So he confronts him in a very serious way. And I want to tell you here from his confrontation, three necessary steps to forgiveness Nathan names everything that David has done. He lifts it all out one after another. Abuse of power and adultery and lying and murder, the whole nine. He confronts the king of Israel. Woo! He's not scared to confront the king. And Part of the problem with so many of our leaders today is they, they think they're above reproach and that no one can confront them. He confronts the king of Israel with all of that, and then he asks this in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 9, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? Wow, what what a question. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? Here's the first thing, though, that is necessary if you all want to get to forgiveness. To get to, forgive, to forgiveness, the first thing you've got to do is name the ugliness of sin. It starts here. We begin by naming the ugliness of sin. Now, I understand they may have been much more direct back then as we are today, but what you've got to understand, sin that has not been named cannot really be forgiven. And so Nathan helps David name the ugliness of his sin to feel the pain that he's caused, not just that he got caught, but by naming the pain, how it hurt others and how it also dishonored God. Naming the ugliness of sin is way deeper than being sorry you got caught. It's admitting how my actions were an affront to a holy God, how they're destructive to other people. And when you do that, that is the beginning of getting on God's agenda. I'd even want to press one further. When we name the ugliness of sin, we recognize it's our sin that put Jesus on the cross. Like this is not a vague concept up here, my friends. This cross is not some vague concept. It's our sin that put him there. And we name the reality of our sin. We feel some of that pain. Moreover, let me press it a little bit more in case I haven't gone far enough. When you name the ugliness of your sin, you recognize that your faith is public. None of us lives our faith in private. The things that we do reflect positively or negatively on your church. I'll say it again. The things that we do in the world reflect positively or negatively on your on your church. You may want to live a private faith. It's not possible. What we do reflects on others who also call on the name of Jesus. The second thing that we need to do if we want to get to forgiveness is we need to own the consequences of sin. We have to name the pain, we have to name the ugliness, but then, number two, we have to own the consequences of sin. Nathan asks, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? And he doesn't stop there, he gets even more specific. He says, you struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. Because you despised me and you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. What's the consequence for David's sin? Did you see it there? The sword will never depart from your house. And that's exactly what happened in David's life. Like you don't just get free, sloppy forgiveness without justice. Justice in David's life was because you were a man of the sword, you're gonna live by the sword. And it was like sin at the highest levels resulting in consequences at the highest levels. And David's next years as king were years, sadly, of bloodshed within his own family and beyond. And it doesn't stop there. Verse 13, David eventually owns his sin. He owns the consequences of all that Nathan is telling him. He owns the consequences. Like David wanted to build the temple and God says, no, you will not build the temple. It's another one of the consequences. And David has to own all of this. Verse 13 then David said to Nathan, the prophet, this good man, this friend in his life group, he says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He doesn't blame shift, does he? He admits it. And he owns up to the consequences of his sin. And those consequences in his life included even the loss of that baby. Now, I don't think that's normative by any means, okay? But in this specific case, the reason David and Bathsheba lose that baby is because it's a consequence of David's sin. And through tears, David eventually owns all of that and he repents and he turns back to God. And it's because of this repentance this naming the reality of sin, accepting the consequences of sin, and then repenting and turning back to God, my friends, that is the only reason that David is called a man after God's own heart. It's not because he was like a wonderful man in every other other way. It's really not that. It's this. He recognizes his sin and how ugly it is, and then he falls on his face and he repents. And he does this again and again. As you read the Psalms, that was his disposition. When he failed, he went back to God, and in that way, he was a man after God's own heart. Now, here's the third necessary step for forgiveness, and this is where we see again that God is so eager to forgive us, it's releasing the sinner. We name it, we own it, and then God comes to us and he simply releases us. And this is exactly what happens to David. Indeed, as you read the Psalms, if you read carefully many of the inscriptions at the top of the Psalms, which are not part of your Bible, they're just descriptions, or if you have a study Bible that kind of tells you what the context of the Psalms are, many of the Psalms are written in the context of David's rebellion, where he experiences God's forgiveness and he writes on that. Psalm 32 is one of those examples. He says, This blessed is the one whose whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Isn't that what guilt feels like? When you have guilt over your sin, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer your hand was heavy upon me. And then the release. Verse five. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Real forgiveness can bring real healing. Forgiveness is the doorway to our wholeness. When there's genuine heartfelt repentance, as we have with David here, God always, this is always his heartfelt disposition. He's a forgiving and compassionate God. It's to release the sinner from their guilt. Now, I've talked to so many people over the years who hear this message and they say, My stuff is too terrible, Adrian. Like, you don't know what I've done. You don't know how far I have fallen from God's standards. I don't see how God could possibly forgive me. Worse than David? Worse than David? And he knew better. Like, here was a man who God spoke to directly who had so many blessings in his favor, he knew better. And yet he falls into that. I don't have time this morning to talk about Abraham and Sarah, or Moses, or Paul, or Peter. Like the story of the Bible from first to last is God taking rebellious sinners like you and me and working this beautiful plan B into our lives. He takes us when we mess up plan A, and he turns it around and he's able, in his flexibility, to work a beautiful plan B, and I would just wanna ask you in all humility, if you are asking, could God really forgive me? It's like, who are you? Who are you to hold a higher bar for forgiveness than God himself gives? Receive the forgiveness that God brings and then let it go. God doesn't want us to be all locked up in a straight jacket. What he does is he forgives us and he wipes the slate clean, removing our guilt, and then he bears the punishment of our sin on the shoulders of Jesus on that cross. He bears the punishment for our sin. And then number three, after removing our guilt and bearing the punishment of our sin, he lifts us up so we can be free once again in the presence of God. Forgiveness is the doorway to wholeness. We can be free in the presence of God as we are forgiven. And few things motivate in my life, few things motivate like the gift of forgiveness. Like for me to know that God knows me completely from day one to year 46 and he forgives me and he still loves me Like, that really motivates me to want to follow Christ more. It motivates me to want to love people more. To be filled with that kind of love, to be filled with that kind of forgiveness. Few things are as motivating as that. It's not holding guilt over people. It's not shaming people for the things that they've done wrong. It's this beautiful motivating power of knowing, though, that we are forgiven. When you realize forgiveness, it strengthens us toward more love. It strengthens us toward more holiness. And friends, I'd want to tell you though this morning, that is true for us both vertically in our relationship with God, and it's also true horizontally in our relationships with one another. Marriages are strengthened through a regular habit of apology and forgiveness. It seems to me today apology and forgiveness are stigmatized and so we're scared to apologize for, for the things that we do wrong. But as Christians, we know that we all fall short of the glory of God. Amen? We all do. And so apology and forgiveness should be normalized, not stigmatized. And to the extent that they're normalized in marriage, we're able to keep short accounts with each other and quickly apologize and quickly forgive and move on with greater love because you realize in a horizontal plane, I am deeply loved even as I'm deeply known, and that's powerful. The same thing is true like in our life groups and our friendships and our parenting. Does anyone else have kids that need to learn how to apologize and forgive? We all do. If you're a parent, you have kids that need to learn how to apologize and to forgive. The best way to teach them is by apologizing. Them seeing you apologize and them learning to forgive off of that. I want to close this morning with another story. And um, it also is about my failure, common denominator here this morning, Um, but a different ending. So my wife and I, when we started talking about marriage 19 years ago, um, we just made a commitment that we would never keep secrets from each other. and that we wouldn't have secrets from each other from our past either and so what that meant was we were not yet engaged but we were talking about the possibility of getting engaged and I wanted to be sure she'd say yes before I asked (laughs) and we start um, you know talking about the seriousness of our past and, and I just told her one day I said Susie I have to own up to some things and she said, you know, I have to own up to some things too. And so we set a time and we met together and she brought her little sticky note and I brought my legal size sheet of paper. Because <laughs> you all know my wife, so. <laughs> and, uh, and, and she shared one or two things. And I, I shared a lot of stuff that I needed forgiveness for and she needed to know about me And she needed to know where I was still growing, where I was still in process. And there couldn't be any hiding about that if we were going to be together. And I'll never forget, after taking it in, Susie said, I've been forgiven for far more. How could I not forgive you? That was her line I have been forgiven for far more. How could I not forgive you? I melted. And I said, better put a ring on it. (laughs) Because, like, the experience of forgiveness releases the sinner. It creates wholeness in a way that almost nothing else can. And I want you to I want to tell you this morning that God is eager to forgive. Like whatever you brought in here today, God is eager to forgive you. And I would say a thousand times over what I experienced from Susie in that moment, God is eager to forgive you. The Bible tells us that he forgives our transgressions and he chooses to remember them no more. I don't think that's hyperbole. I think he actually chooses to remember them no more. To him, our sins are unremembered. They are forgotten. As far as the east is far from the west, that's how far God has removed our transgressions from us. So who are we to hold God to a higher standard? Receive the forgiveness of the one who alone is God, who is eager to forgive you today. For our God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, maintaining His love to thousands and forgiving your wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Father, we come to You now and we just thank You. We thank You for Your everlasting love for us and Your great forgiveness to us through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't for nothing that you, forgives us, that you forgive us. It's the cross of Jesus. You took up our sins. You bore our iniquities, as the scriptures say. And so, Father, as I wrap up here, though, this morning, I just want to close with a couple questions, Father, from my friends today, those watching in the venue and those watching online and here in the auditorium. My friends, let me just ask you this question. Is there anything today that you need to ask God's forgiveness for? Is there anything that you're holding on to that you need to repent? That you need to look up at the cross? That you need to confess? And you need to ask God's forgiveness? If there is, perhaps you would just move in this moment of silence and approach God and express your sin to him and Ask him to forgive you. As you do so, I pray that you would receive his love for you today. That he pardons you of all your transgressions. Because he's taken them upon his son, on the cross of Calvary. And for others, I just need to ask this question as I close. Do you really believe that God is eager to forgive you? Do you actually believe today that God is eager to forgive you? That he's not holding out in anger? That he loves you and he wants the very best for you today? And if God is not holding out against you, why would you keep holding out against yourself? So Lord, when we blow it even this week, perhaps this week we'll make a mistake of some kind. We'll, we'll sin in some way. Lord, when we do, would you give us the courage not to run away from you, but to run back to you and to experience your love, which forgives us and frees us and motivates us to love you more. Thank you, God, for this indescribable gift of your forgiveness through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray together. Amen.